From the Ryerson Review of Journalism, this is Pull Quotes. I'm Emily Pardo. And I'm Laura Howells. Well, it's a vile, sexist phrase, and it's been back in the news lately. A judge in Newfoundland recently dismissed a charge against a man who yelled F her right in the P, in the non-abridged version, at a reporter while she was on the job. We'll talk to that reporter, as well as our colleague at the Ryerson Review, who's been taking a close look at the attacks and harassment that women in this industry face. But first, this year, the federal budget included some promises for Canadian journalism. Obviously, the industry has been struggling, as organizations face plummeting revenues and wide-scale layoffs and shutdowns. And some major players, particularly in newspapers and the legacy media, have been calling for the government to step in and help. Well, now the feds have announced new funding for journalism, $50 million over the next five years. And here to talk about what this means is the managing editor of JSource, H.G. Watson. Okay, so can you give us an overview of what this budget has for journalism in Canada? Well, it's actually what this budget doesn't have for journalism. It, it was It's very short. What's actually in the budget is like three paragraphs. And basically what it says is it's going to be, as you said in your intro, $50 million over fi- the next five years that's slated for local journalism initiatives. I mean, but it doesn't seem to get into too much more detail about what that actually means. So who could potentially be administering those funds or if that's going to be going to pre-existing media organizations, things like that. Um, What the budget specifically says is that these are funds that are slated to go to local, independent, non-governmental organizations. So that they'll be free from, you know, being politicized. Um, Which, I mean, is good, but at the same time, it doesn't give us a lot of clarity on whether that, again, is a news organization. So, or if that's, you know, we're talking about some of the organizations that give out grants in this country. I know that in the Um, the Public Policy Forum's Shattered Mirror report, uh, they made some suggestions around um, the Canadian press uh, being an organization or APTN. Yeah, so the Public Policy Forum in the Shattered Mirror report and also in a press release that they put out yesterday after the budget was released, they did say that the Canadian press could be an organization that could allocate that $10 million a year to local resources and as well as APTN could do it um, for Indigenous communities. And I mean, I Again, I would like to have more detail. I don't want to say like that's a good or a bad thing necessarily. I am in favor of there being money to hire reporters, especially in small communities where that's, you know, that is an issue. They're not getting the journalism that they need for democracy to function. However, um, you know, administering funds this size, that is somebody's full-time job. It's and it's not something necessarily that all organizations are going to be set up to do. Um, you know, and the Canadian press is a business. So I, again, you know, how is there going to be transparency about if, if they did do it, if, how would there be transparency about how they are allocating those funds? Um, you know, would part of those funds end up going into hiring someone to manage the funds or, you know, is, would it do, would it bolster their local, the local bureaus they already have? Would they be opening new bureaus? I just sort of wonder about how that accountability will work. And again, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to say this is good, this is bad. I think generally we need more details about how these funds are going to be allocated and who's going to be doing the allocation. Um, Yesterday on Twitter, um, some of the people that I was talking to, they suggested, for instance, that um, 
you know, maybe it would be something that local organizations could apply for, and then they would work in tandem with a local news organization to have reporters covering certain beats, and that could be really interesting. There's lots of beats that are, you know, have not had a reporter following them for some time. Uh, again, if you have the Canadian press that's going to be opening more bureaus or having more reporters in local towns, I think, you know, Again, I'm always in favor of having more reporters and getting people more people paid for their work. I just think that the big question that remains is how are they going to administer those funds and how are they going to be accountable for those funds? So the other big thing in the budget for journalism is that the government's looking at allowing news organizations to be granted charitable status. What would that mean? Bas- essentially right now in Canada, it's difficult for news organizations to have charitable status. So there's just a lot of stipulations put right now on being a charity or having nonprofit status. I think one of the other concerns that I understand as well is that uh, charities can only have a certain percentage of what they do go towards political causes. Um, and of course, a lot of journalism by its nature is going to be considered political, even though it's you know bipartisan or objective or what have you. Um, so because of that, it, it's just very difficult for a lot of places to pursue that, even though we've seen in other countries. So for instance, the United States, there's a lot of really great examples of, of uh, news organizations that are functioning successfully as nonprofits. And it seems like that is one of the models that can, or it could be a sustainable journalism model. Um, so there's definitely been a desire here to see more of that. Um, so I think that could be fairly significant. We've even seen in the States there's newspapers that have become fully nonprofit, or we've seen um, investigative arms like ProPublica, which is just totally investigative, but they work with places like the New York Times, and they're doing amazing work, and again, that's as a nonprofit. Um, so I think that would really open up some opportunities for Canadian media to get into that and to do some more specialized reporting. Um, but again, we need to see what the details of that actually are are um i'd be very curious to see if like if someplace like the toronto star or any of the post media papers or any single paper just said you know what we're going to become fully non-profit now because i mean it, it could work out really well for them or it could not we'll guess, just have to see how it goes do you see any drawbacks of allowing charitable status for news orgs i i mean i think generally it's shown to be a good idea I think one of the things that will probably get raised is if, you know, if you have organizations that are on different ends of the political spectrum, you know, whether that's, you know, the rebel on the right um, or press progress on the left. I mean, those are both, um, you know, some people would hesitate to call them news organizations because of their clear political leanings, but they do publish news in some form. Um, So I could see that people might, you know, be concerned that you are you know, giving charitable status to places that have a clear political agenda. So I'm curious to see whether the legislation will address that, whether it's going to say, like, you know, it has to be this kind of reporting or it has to be, you know, show that it's bipartisan or it's objective or it can be only after these certain goals. I don't know that I'm necessarily in favor of that. I don't think you can sort of, especially like, you know, because that opens the door for a government that, say, didn't want to fund nonprofit journalism to say, all right, this is the only kind of journalism that we want to mandate. And I don't really think governments should be involved in that. Um, But then that means for us as citizens, we're going to have to take that anybody can go after that nonprofit status. Whether that actually works out for them, though, too, is a whole other matter. Like, I mean, you can decide to become a nonprofit journalism outlet, but maybe it's going to turn out that you're that's just not the business model for you and it doesn't work. 
if, if you are of charitable status, I guess that means you're relying more on people just really believing in your work and, you know, donating. Well, and the thing is in the States, um, to keep in mind is that there are huge foundations in the States that are able to give places like ProPublica millions of dollars. Um, in Canada, sure, there are foundations. They, it's not quite as large and the infrastructure isn't quite as big as you would find it in, in the States. Um, so for that reason, I mean, maybe some of the, once it, it, once those changes happen, sure, maybe some of those foundations are going to then say, all right, we'd like to start donating to journalism. Maybe that's what, just what's been holding them back. We have no guarantee that that's going to happen. And the, the thing too, with, you know, fighting with any kind of donation, whether it's Patreon, any kind of model like that, where it's Patreon or crowdfunding or whatever, is, you know, you have to then argue for people's dollars and, and, you know, Everyone has the places that they decide to support and that they want to donate to. Um, so, for instance, in the fall, you've got all these campaigns. You know, some people are going to say, "Well, I'd love to support journalism, but right now my nonprofit or my charity budget is going towards cancer charities, or it's going towards you know helping mental health charities." And those are all admirable, great things. But that means then journalism has to be in there fighting to to be taking people's money as well, and that's a really tough thing to do. So, what have you been seeing as kind of the industry response to this budget? I mean, it's really interesting to me because there was so much hand-wringing before this that there was going to be like a newspaper bailout. I mean, this is just not even close to a bailout. I mean, even, I think even if the government had said, we're going to give $10 million to the top four media, or top 10 media organizations in Canada, that would not be close to enough to cover the drops in advertising revenue that they've seen over the last 10 years. I think a lot of people with the budget, what I've seen so far is kind of a, you know, Okay, like, I, I, again, I think a lot of people have questions about how this $50 million over five years, what that's actually going to look like. And, and yeah, I mean, there's nothing really in there to get angry about. Like, I, I just, I, I can't really say anything until we know more about who it is and how it's going to work. I mean, I've certainly seen some negative pushback to the budget from people in the industry saying, well, this isn't enough. Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm a newspaper publisher, uh, like, say, a tour star where they recently did an interview with the Globe and Mail where they basically said, oh, we're on desk door and we really need help, then obviously I would not be happy with this budget and what was in it. But, I mean, I think that a news, like an actual newspaper bailout, like if they were to say you have you know, we're going to help you out. Here's millions and millions of dollars. That is just the issues that I've already said with just the $10 million, but fivefold, because then you're talking about multiple millions of dollars to organizations that haven't, as of now, haven't shown that they've solved their business model issues. There'd be no indication with that money necessarily that they are, you know, going to make the right business decisions, that it's going to reverse their tailspins. I think some of the other things that have potentially been suggested, like, I mean, uh, the other thing that gets thrown around is that they have to compete with the CBC. Um, and this budget didn't, as far as I can tell, have anything really to say about the CBC, about changes in its funding, or whether it could continue to do digital advertising and things like that. But the reality is, if it's not the CBC, then they're also competing against the BBC and the New York Times and all these other organizations that are just have so much funding and they're not going to be regulated by Canadian law. They don't, they can, you know, really do whatever they want and we can log on wherever we want. So I think that for, you know, if it were me, <laughs> if anyone wants to make me the publisher of a newspaper, I would really be focused, I wouldn't be worrying so much about what 
the other guys are doing necessarily and who, where I can get, you know, if the government's going to give me money, I'd be focusing primarily on solving my own business issues. And I, again, it's very hard because nobody has it totally figured out. It's a tough time for every single outlet out there. It's, it's not an easy industry, but I don't think that means that it's, you know, it's time to ask for necessarily interventions and things like that. Yeah, and the the idea of government intervention in the journalism industry at all is is controversial, um, especially when it comes to giving money to you know seemingly floundering organizations um, like newspapers. I mean, are you are you hearing any pushback to even these measures that were introduced yesterday? I heard more pushback for sure um, about when you know when they were floating around bigger numbers. Uh, again, mostly what I was hearing yesterday is that it's a bit of a shoulder shrug, right? Like, because you, until we know a bit more about, again, how they're actually going to dole these funds out and what they're going to do, it doesn't, it's not clear to me who this is going to impact. Yeah, there are a lot of questions. And one thing that uh, was brought up is there's no mention of the Canada Periodical Fund in the budget. Right. Um, So the Canada Periodical Fund is the grant-giving organization that gives funds to mostly Canadian magazines. Um, And there's been a big push for them to actually start giving grants to newspapers and primarily online outlets. And in a way, again, that could be something interesting to look at. I mean, at least with those grants, there is, you know, there's already a body set up that is giving grants. You know, I can FOI information about them. Um, They publish who who's getting money and how much money every year. So there is some transparency that can be enforced there, which I, I do like. And yeah, I mean, so the Canada Periodical Fund is going to need to change because the nature of publishing has changed. But again, I mean, there's lots of people who right now feel that, you know, there's big magazines that are run by some of the bigger companies like Rogers that get Canada Periodical Fund money. And there's people that feel, well, they shouldn't be getting those grants. Again, I'm a bit agnostic on that. Obviously, this is a story that's very close to the media. Um, <laughs> the, some possible conflicts of interest there in covering it. Um, what, what do you think of the media coverage you've seen around the budget and, and just this general sort of storyline of uh, government intervention in the journalism industry? Right. It's so hard. Even me, for me talking about it, obviously, like I'm a media reporter, so I have like triple <laughs> the conflicts, right? And as I've said, I, you know, I don't think anyone would be surprised. I'm in favor of... You know, at the end of the day, I just want my friends to be employed. I want to have a future in this industry. I'm still a youngish reporter. <laughs> like, I would like to keep doing this and and not have to go and work in PR. That would be a huge tragedy. So, like, I, I, as, I'm very interested, as everyone else is, in, you know, how are we going to keep evolving and funding journalism going forward? I just think that, like, as journalists, it behooves us to be, you know, to hold these authorities to the same account that we would if we were reporting on corruption or anything else. Just because we're going to be getting this money, we shouldn't be just sort of saying, oh, well, it's good, it's money for journalism. Like, we need to be asking really tough questions about where, why it's coming, where it's coming from, how it's going to be doled out, um, you know, demanding that transparency and those answers. That was H.G. Watson, Managing Editor at JSource. online death threats, sexist tweets. If you're a female journalist, chances are you've dealt with some pretty gross situations. 
One all too common experience is people yelling the obscene phrase, F her right in the P at TV reporters while they're on camera. That's happened to NTV reporter Heather Gillis a few times, including in St. John's last year outside the local landfill. Here's Heather talking about what happened. Okay, so I was doing an interview with Danny Breen, who was Ward 1 counselor at the time. He's now the mayor of the city of St. John's since an election in September. Him and I were talking. Uh, I was set up outside the landfill on a grassy area just off the side of the road. And someone drove by and yelled F her in the P. Essentially, after all my interviews, I like to make sure that I have the gist of it and I have it right. We were talking. Uh, and so, obviously, like, the whole conversation derailed. And Danny Breen was like, you know what? The landfill is closed today. He has to come out of there. And I was like, you know what? You're right. So he was kind of parked, just waiting for me to leave. So I went over and snapped a photo of the vehicle and got its license plate. And I tweeted out a picture and uh, just basically saying that it's not okay. Because this is not the first time that this has happened to me. It's happened multiple times. I think this incident, it was like the third or fourth time. You said this has happened to you three or four times that people have, you know, shouted and like, after yeah. a the and. Yep, and it's happened twice since. And actually, on Monday evening, um, someone yelled it at my colleague, Danielle Barron, while she was outside City Hall here in St. John's. So, I mean, how does that affect you when you're on the job and, and that happens? It can be a little frightening. You don't know who these people are. You don't know what their intent is. You know, it most often is a drive-by slur, but they're... They're, they're trying to get someone to incite sexual violence against you. Do you know what I mean? By saying F her in the P, you're telling someone to do something to my body without my consent, essentially. So why now? I mean, this has happened to you before, but why this time did you decide to go ahead and file a complaint with the police? Well, the police actually reached out to me on Twitter saying um, that if I filed a complaint, they could investigate before, I kind of felt like, you know, this is not, not that it's not a super huge deal, but in terms of possible criminality, like, but when the police reached out and said that they could investigate, and I was like, you know what, I am going to file a complaint, so I did. So the man got charged with causing a disturbance, but last week a judge dismissed that charge. The judge said the phrase was vulgar and offensive, but in this context, it didn't meet the legal precedent for the crime. This caused a lot of reaction and opened a discussion about whether the laws should be changed. Heather also got a lot of messages, and most of them were supportive. I probably received about 100 messages, and 99.9% of them are positive. People have been so kind and so wonderful, but unfortunately also there has been some negative um, comments as well. So I'd say probably around like... I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock yesterday morning, I got a message to my professional Facebook. Someone wrote F her right in the P to me on my message. So, like, you know, that's a little disturbing. Someone also wrote um, a message being like, women don't make good journalists. If you uh, are offended by someone screaming F her in the P at you, you need psychiatric help to cure your snowflake mentality men make better journalists because they're emotionally stronger. And it's just it's just trolls, but still, it's people are seeking me out to write these kinds of nasty things. And um, it's not cool. So I know you didn't get the 
the outcome that you were hoping for. Um, but do you, do you regret going through this whole process? No, I don't, because it lends some clarity, um, I guess, to the law. So we know going forward that if someone's charged with causing a disturbance, it may stick and it may not. So maybe if it happens again, and if it happens again, I'm going to try my best to take a shot of the license plate, whether it's on my camera as a video journalist or on my cell phone like last time. And if the police are able to investigate and find the person, maybe a different charge. So it's, I think it's just testing the waters to see what it is, or maybe if the laws are changed, like Kathy Bennett is talking about, maybe there's going to be something there that can stick as well. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to back down. You'd file another complaint if this happens again and you can? Yeah, if I get a, if I get a shot of the license plate, absolutely. What do you think is going to be the impact of this particular decision? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I am worried that people are, again, going to try to test the waters and yell this at reporters out in the field more often because they think they can get away with it now. And I feel responsible for for that because it's going to happen to some of my colleagues here in Newfoundland and across the country, and I, I, I feel really sad about that. I guess my final question is whether anything has changed for you going through this whole process. No, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I, I still come to work every day, and I still you know, put my camera up on the tripod and do my best. So I'm going to continue to do that. That was Heather Gillis with NTV News in St. John's. So Heather says she'll keep doing what she's doing. But for female reporters, harassment, especially online, can be a frequent occurrence. Jacob Dubay is one of our colleagues at the Ryerson Review. He's been digging into this issue for a feature in the Ryerson Review magazine. So we had him into the studio, and Emily spoke to Jacob about his reporting. Thanks for joining us, Jacob. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Okay, so we wanted to get this out of the way right off the bat. You're a guy reporting on a story that's mainly about women and the issues that they're facing. So why is this something that you wanted to dig into? Yeah, so that's definitely something that I was going to mention right off the bat as well. Um, but yeah, like the the reason the reason that I'm writing this, obviously, like I I know that I'm not the perfect person to do it, but it's um I initially started as not a story about this uh, specifically. It was more about the issues that like all journalists face, but it became increasingly apparent that this was a very exclu- not an exclusive issue, but it happened very in a very specific way for like women and people of color especially that was not seen with like men. And so I figured this would be a really good thing to focus on and concentrate on because like it happens in such a cruel way that has really nothing to do with the stories that they write. And that was something that I really wanted to go way deeper in. And so I had to get more specific or else um, I I would just be like writing something about criticism. And that's not really what this is. Can you uh, tell us a bit about what did you hear over the course of your reporting? Uh, So one of the people that I spoke to, um, actually, the reason that I started this piece in the first place was because over the summer, I remember, uh, I'm sure you remember when uh, Omar Khadr received his settlement from the government. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michelle Shepard from the Toronto Star has been one of the people that has been covering that the most. And so she wrote a story just about how he was receiving the settlement. And someone actually, like, wiped their butt with it and sent it to her in the mail. Wow. Yeah. And so, like, I saw that tweet and she she took it like a champ. She made a joke of it, like, oh, I'm glad he's a subscriber because it was a print issue. Mm-hmm. And I saw that. And so, 
like that's definitely in there, kind of like everything that happened to her, because like that sense, they weren't angry at her, but they would send her threats because they weren't happy with the things that she was reporting on. Mm -hmm. And so like that's kind of where it kickstarted it for me. And like Michelle Shepard has has been dealing with this for a while and uh, like she's in there. That's an insane, like, can you imagine just having that? I know. I was like, wow. Yeah, she said that it, it has actually happened to several people in her office. So there's like, there's a serial wiper that sends stuff to the Toronto Star when he's not happy. Wow. Do you have any other examples of the kind of thing that you uh, came across? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the main ones is just if someone writes about like a, a social issue, especially, that's what would get um, these people online really, really angry. And it, um, I, I spoke at length with Elizabeth Renzetti from the Globe and Mail, and it happens to her all the time, where like sometimes she doesn't even check the comments or she doesn't even check her Twitter because she already knows what kind of stuff is going to be out there, mm-hmm. and like she's been, she's been called some like some really really bad stuff. Um, like one example she gave is she wrote a piece about the like sexual misconduct allegations against Donald Trump, and people were commenting that she wasn't attractive enough to be harassed by Donald Trump. And I know, <laughs> okay. I know. But like stuff like that would happen to every single person I spoke to. Yeah. So based on what you heard, how big of a problem is harassment for journalists? Uh, it seems basically ubiquitous. I, 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 I don't think I spoke to a single person that didn't have a story about dealing with this. Hmm. And I think the reason that a lot of people maybe aren't aware of it is because uh, like as journalists, we tend to keep things very closed up and we feel like we don't we don't want to talk about our problems because uh, like it'll make us seem weak. If like if something's bothering us and like we really feel like we have to push through it and persevere because there's this whole weird culture of like everyone is really strong and no one needs help. Everyone's very independent. But that kind of the side effect is that nobody talks about it when they're genuinely hurt or genuinely worried about receiving threats and insults and this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand that feeling of not wanting to show weakness, especially when you were um, in the public eye so much. Um, are there any types of supports out there for journalists? Um, I mean, the main support that I've that I found out through speaking to these people is that it's just like there are other coworkers mainly. Mm. It's like they're also the people that are dealing with the same thing you are, and so they're the ones that will understand. Uh, what you're going through and so just like a lot of the time just speaking to them about what's happening will kind of make it less serious and less real especially because you know that they've gone through similar things and it's not really about you and so that's definitely one of them and uh, a lot of the times the organizations themselves actually do provide support uh, but in the way that it's like if you need us to intervene in any way we will or like if you need us for counseling, we will. But a lot of the time, uh, that's not that's not very used. That's mm. not used very often. But like they do they do bring up that the publication will be there to back them up. Yeah. But um, what I heard a lot is that because a lot of this happens on their personal accounts, there's not much that that like an organization can do because that is their personal account. It doesn't belong to like um, like the publication. Yeah. So so that's almost like there's this weird barrier where because it is so personal, it's hard for the like bigger institutions to intervene. Has the nature of harassment been changing over the years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so before, the only way that you could actually harass a journalist, if that was something that you so wanted to do, 
is um, you'd have to like write them a letter. And the thing with like being angry is that um, now if you're angry, you just whip out your phone, you already have the person there, you just write something real quick and it's off and it's permanent and it's there. But if you if you were angry and you had to write a letter, you had to sit there, you had to find some stationery, you have to find some pens, you had to like write your thing down, you had to make sure it was legible, fold it up, put it in an envelope, send it out and make sure you have the right address. And that's a lot of steps to mm-hmm. stay as angry as you were. And so uh, in that in that world, people still like received death threats and attacks and stuff like that. But um, they were they were more mitigated and there were less of them. But now it's just because it's so easy to send something out like online. Uh, and like that's good because we can communicate better. But that's also bad because we have less time to actually think about what we're saying. Mm-hmm. And um, so what will happen a lot is that people will send like a death threat, something that is like legally uh like a a, a criminal offense and but they won't realize because they're just so mad that they'll just type something up Mm -hmm. and then a cop will show up at their door and to let them know that they've done this serious thing and then they'll take it back so um now there's definitely less barriers to just like say whatever you want and that can kind of go both ways Mm -hmm. so you're talking about how easy it is now to be sending hateful things to reporters people used to have to write letters and now it's just commenting online and so available all the time and um, more and more news organizations are actually starting to turn off their comments, especially on sensitive articles, and getting rid of the comments altogether, mm-hmm. the whole section. Do you think that's a good thing? Uh, first of all, last year, um, someone from the RJ wrote a really good piece all about just comment sections. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my info are kind of based off of that. But I think because uh, they turned off comment sections, I think that is increasing the amount of people that get attacked on their personal accounts. Yeah. Because if you find a story from a writer, you could just attack them on the comment section. But if that's not there and you still want to voice your opinion, then you have to message the person personally. Yeah. And so um, like they're by closing off the comment sections. Sure. uh, When people go and find a story, then they won't be bombarded by all this, this hate, these hateful messages. But that means that the writer themselves might actually be bombarded with more Mm -hmm. of these because they actually have to go into their story and read the comments as opposed to getting a notification on their phone that is personally sent to them. Yeah. And so I I understand it on the, on the side of the publishers because they don't want to be dealing with these, this like forum for hate speech on their actual platforms, but like these people are still out there and they're going to find another way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so like it, it helps the publication, but it might hinder the writers a little bit more. Like instead of, um, being angry at the publication for publishing what they're so mad about they attack the writer for the story they were assigned kind of deal yeah exactly yeah so in your feature you talked to Sri Paradkar um, a columnist at the Toronto Star and she compared uh, feelings of harassment to chronic pain can you tell us a bit about that okay yeah um, I mean I I don't want to speak for her too much because I, I am yeah. I am just a white guy but <laughs> um, but yeah like what what she was telling me was that a lot of the time if you receive like a death threat or something like this that's very localized for a story um, or like a subject that you're writing on, um, that's pretty easy to tackle because it's a temporary thing and it's something that will only happen if you write these kind of stuff. But um, why she kind of compared like the attacks because of like stories that she wrote about racialized people or like different communities is that it happens all the time no matter what. And it could be just as serious as that localized attack. And so it's almost like it becomes a chronic pain because it might be as bad, but because it happens so often, 
you can't like take a day off every time or you can't like take more aggressive action because it's just like such a constant in your life and in your writing yeah uh we talked to heather gillis about the f her right in the p that um, was yelled at her uh she took her harassment to courts but that's not very common is it no um I spoke to a couple of media lawyers about this, and a lot of the time, it's just not worth the effort, yeah. right? Because, like, imagine how much money it costs to hire a lawyer and to follow through with a court case. Mm. And at the end of the day, like, what do you actually get for that? Uh, because someone else is just going to, like, send you an identical message the next week. Yeah. And uh, there's also the added problem that a lot of the times, um, these people that are sending you these messages are anonymous, and, like, you can't really find them that easily. Like, a, a police officer has to track their IP address. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, it might just be a coffee shop or a library. But if it is isn't, if it is a house, then they might show up and just, like, ask them to stop. Yeah. Uh, there, it, it's not very often that it actually goes to court. Obviously, like, with that case, it was different because there was a physical person in this space that you can, be, that you can identify. And so that makes it a lot easier. Mm. Uh, but, like, when, when this kind of stuff happens online... Uh, it's the anonymity makes it so much harder to follow through and it might not even be worth it just because of the sheer amount of people that do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, although to be fair, um, one of the, one of the lawyers that I spoke to, Peter Jacobson did mention that it's sometimes good to actually send a message by having a court case, because if there's one court case that might prevent dozens more people from doing it yeah. because they know that there are actual consequences. So, um, yeah, a lot of people have dealt with it in different ways. Like, Elizabeth Renzetti created a group at the Globe that kind of gets together and tries to figure out uh, different like policy changes that they can do within their publication, but also uh, they're there to just like support each other through uh, their work and like through talking through everything that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Shri Paradkar says that the way that she deals with it is just by writing even more stories that these people don't like and just like keep pushing forward with her work because um, a big part of this is that. Um, and, and this was part of a study. Mm-hmm. Trolls just want to have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we're basically like these people, these people that are trolling people, they're doing it because um, like they're either sadists. So they, they just really like attacking people and making them feel bad. Or they're actually intimidated um, as straight white men, as most of them usually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're intimidated by the fact that these like powerful, strong women are coming out with these great voices and interesting pieces. And they want things to go back to normal or like what they consider normal which Mm -hmm. is like their voices aren't present in the mainstream and so um the way that tree does it like as i said is that she just keeps working because that's exactly what they don't want they want people to quit and give up uh and when you don't you are actively fighting against them yeah uh you mentioned that men experience harassment too what's the difference between the kind of harassment that women experience in comparison to what men would experience Mm -hmm. As we've been talking about, a lot of the harassment that, like, women face is very, uh, like, personal-based and very um, based around their bodies. And so it'll be a lot of uh, threats of sexual violence or threats against their family or their children. And um, I don't know why. Maybe it's because of some messed-up sort of respect. Is that, like, they'll, out with the men, when they attack them, they attack their um, economic position. And they'll try and get them fired from their job. Mm. Or they'll try and make them feel insecure about, like, their place in the world. Yeah. And so I feel like it's a lot of the stuff that uh, they themselves would feel insecure about. But there is this this huge divide between, um, between like, those kind of attacks 
And um, yeah, it, it's very much just they try and find what they consider a weak spot and, uh, okay. and like attack that and exploit that. And especially uh, because of the kind of people that do it, when they see a woman, they, they see their weak spot as their whole being in existence, as opposed to yeah. um, a man, they think like, oh, it's his job, he cares about his job, and then they go for that. So in all of your reporting and everything, did you learn anything or did your attitude shift at all while you were working on the story? Um, I got a little bit sadder, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like as I was, I kept trying to find some sort of tangible thing that they can do, but a lot of the time, uh, no one just has any idea. Mm-hmm. And this is something that people are constantly keep trying to figure out because, like, social media sites are private companies. They're not government-run. Yeah. There's not so much regulation we can put on them or that or that is being put on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I am definitely way more aware of um, who's getting messages and how this is affecting the reporters personally because yeah. that's definitely another thing, right, is that you see a reporter online, you just see a face, you see the byline, but not a lot of the time you associate them with a human being. Yeah. And so just like speaking to them about what it was like and like how they felt when they received these messages makes it so that every single name that you see online is a person Mm. and you can't treat it as a sounding board for your anger, your frustration, um, as so many people do. So that's definitely the takeaway that I got out of this is that like every person online is a person and everything they write has their motivations and everything you send has a consequence of some sort. Thank you so much. For oh, no problem. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. That's it for Pull Quotes this week. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism, produced by Laura Howells, Jacob McNair, and myself, Emily Pardo. Our executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper, and thanks so much to Angela Glover for all her tech help. Follow us on Twitter at PullQuotesRRJ or email pullquotes at ryerson.ca. See you next week.